Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 24th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. As at least most of our listeners and, and readers should know, in September, Christagenia was deplatformed by Lulu, where we had two of our books, two of our hour two published books, I should say, Christrike and the Christagenia New Testament, available for the last seven and eight years. So after several weeks of looking for possible alternatives, we have decided to have the books printed in bulk, and to retail them ourselves, which is our only viable alternative. Reading the terms of service for companies like Cafe Press or similar, I am certain that if I tried to employ any of them, we would only be cancelled again. Some kike would complain, some antifa sissy would get butthurt and complain, and another company would just cancel us. We'd also thought to employ Ingram Content Group, or its lightning source print-on-demand service, but found that they had just canceled services for another nationalist book publisher, which we think is carrying relatively tame content if they are compared to ourselves. So I'm certain that we would not last there either, and I'm not even going to try it. They had published an, an, an outfit that's actually run by a League of the South member, I believe, and it's called a to Z Publications.com or something like that. So in order to be cost-effective and to get our books published, we must print at least 200 copies of a given title at one time. For us, that is a considerable outlay of principle. But that is the smallest quantity we can order at which the books would also be reasonably priced for resale. 200 copies cost about half as much as an order of 24 copies in in the long run. The, the per book cost for 200 copies is half of what it is at 24 copies. And if we could finance a thousand copies, each copy would be another 25% cheaper than the price of 200. That's the way it is. It's a scale. The more books you have printed at once, the lower the price gets. But that sort of capital is well beyond our reach. We are also limited, for now, to softcover books, since at any quantity... It costs over twice as much to have hardcover books printed than it does softcover books. I pray that in the near future, we shall be able to have some hardcover books printed. This past week, we have added the capability to our Christagenia.com website so that we can retail our own books. And while we have several friends who have volunteered to do order fulfillment for us. For the time being, at least, we have decided to do the order fulfillment ourselves. This past week, I have ordered 200 softcover copies of the Christagenia New Testament. If I am pleased with the quality when they arrive, sometime around December 10th, I hope, 
I will immediately order 200 copies of Christrike, which is already placed, but which I have put on hold. I don't want to get the pay to have the second book printed if I don't like the quality of the first. When I do order 200 copies of Christrike, I hope to have them before mid-January. As soon as the books are delivered, we will make an announcement that they are available for purchase on our websites. From what I can tell, the Christianian New Testament will sell for $16 for a softcover copy, and Christrike for about $12, with additional fees for shipping. The first people who order books might get burned out of a few dollars for shipping, the way the shipping prices are set, I'm hoping they cover our costs, and after we ship the first few books, if the cost is lower than what we have, we will reduce it immediately. If memory serves me correctly, however, the prices we plan on selling these new softcover books for the Christianity New Testament are at least $3, and for Christrike, as much as $5 cheaper than the softcover editions were through Lulu. I think the Christigany New Testament was actually 1995 or something like that on Lulu. And Christrike may have been almost $18, so they might even be $4 and $6 cheaper. Now with this, I also hope to make more of my work available in book form. It's something I've been talking about, I think, for three years now. So this week I also began formatting my commentary on Paul's Epistle to the Romans as a six-inch by nine-inch softcover book. If I had the capital to have that printed, beyond it, I will have my commentaries on Acts, Hebrews, Amos, Zechariah, and Malachi, and then eventually, hopefully within the next year or two, all the rest of Paul's epistles. My commentaries on Matthew, Mark, and Luke will, admittedly, require additional writing and editing, as my early work is not as polished as what I am now presenting. Eventually, I would also like to have the Protocols of Satan available in book form, and there's a few other series of podcasts as well which I think are worthy of it and the protocols of Satan would probably require several volumes of course I'm not anywhere as near done with that I may also split my commentary on Acts into two volumes because presently it's formatted to be in one book it's not quite finished yet but the formatting has been begun and it's like 600 pages that's probably the longest of the ones that I'm planning to publish or or hoping to publish in the next year or two. I must also state, and and I really even hate to mention this, and, and I do it very rarely, I must also state that financial support for our work at Christagenia is still off considerably since PayPal canceled our account last May. While I hate to make any appeals for funding, the work which I do cannot finance itself. And of course, we still have an overhead of over $900 per month in internet expenses alone. 
Now, there are a lot of websites just as popular or even more popular than Christagenia, which do not have that overhead. Most of those websites also do not store a lot of media, podcasts, or, or videos. But Christagenia is really over a dozen websites by itself, and we host at least two dozen websites for other Christian identity and white nationalist pastors or organizations, and we do that at our own expense. Many of them would not be on the internet at all if it were not for our efforts. I would rather have them there and have the extra expense. We have a new PayPal account under the email address for william at williamfink.net. Actually, we've had it for several months, and I'm just getting around to mentioning it. But I cannot publish it, or that too will certainly be canceled. We also have an account at Patreon, which has pretty much languished all year. I think there are four subscribers. And in spite of that, we have just started an account at Patreon, patreon.com slash wmfink, I believe. The links are at the bottom of the Christagenia, the main website, webpage at Christagenia. Patreon is sort of a Patreon for white nationalists, because even Patreon has been canceling some white nationalist accounts or Christian nationalist accounts. We hope that if you continue to listen to these podcasts and appreciate our work, that you continue to support us in our endeavors. But we do understand that many of our listeners and friends simply cannot afford to support our work financially, as they can barely get by themselves. I know that you feeding your family is far more important, and that is difficult to do in modern America. I do not disdain any of our brethren who do not help us financially, not at all. But I would encourage you to help us in other ways. If you listen to Christagenia regularly and you appreciate our work, then post for us in social media. Post links to our podcasts or essays or websites. Post links in mainstream media comment sections. Use Christagenia logos and images and memes in social media or as account avatars. Plenty of our friends do this now, and the more would also be the better. There are galleries of these images and memes posted at the main website. The galleries link is all the way at the bottom of the page. Just scroll all the way down and look for the link that says galleries, and scroll the resulting page, and you'll find collections of Christiania logos, icons, and memes. Every little thing that you can do to help attract people to our work helps our common cause. Christian identity is truth. Two seed line is truth. It is truth that world Jewry is Satan. This is the truth, the only truth for where we are at in the world today. And we want to put it in the face of the world whether they love us or hate us for it. Even if you must do it discreetly, you can certainly help us with that. But if you listen to or read our work and you do not help us in any way, then you must ask yourself what you are doing. If not for 
our sakes. You should be doing something to help yourself. No man lights a candle and hides it under a bed. Now that I have updated our friends and listeners concerning all of that, we shall present special notices to all who deny to seed line, part 22. As we make our presentation this evening, we shall see Clifton offer a defense of Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, William Gale, and Nord Davis. Not that I really like Nord Davis. I have a personal beef, but that's okay. It's not really personal. It's about things that he wrote. But that's okay. In some respects, he does deserve to be defended. And we will see that. Because while we can defend these men for their profession of what we call to seed line, we do not have to agree, as Clifton will also say, we do not have to agree with everything which they taught or said. Rather, we must understand that they were merely men. And that while their studies have helped us tremendously, they were also imperfect and it is our duty to improve upon their teachings where they themselves fell short. As Paul had said, we all sin or make mistakes, and therefore we all fall short of the glory of God. But that is not an excuse to be slothful in our scholarship or to cleave to errors for the sake of man. I've told this story in various ways in the past, but now I am going to summarize it again. When I became acquainted with Christian identity in 1997, for about a year I read and appreciated Swift, Compare, and a host of other identity writers to whom I am indebted. But when I decided to study it seriously. I wanted to prove it for myself. So by the end of 1998, I set aside all of the Christian identity materials so that I could concentrate solely on scripture, language, and historical studies that would either prove or destroy what I had read from those other writers. While I did continue to purchase some identity books and pamphlets after that time, It was mostly only so that I could give them to others who wanted to learn. It's easier to hand somebody E. Raymond Katz's Abrahamic Covenant than it is to try to explain it all on your own every time you encounter someone. Around that same time, I was introduced to the writings of Clifton Emmeheiser, by a good friend and longtime student of Christian identity named Ralph Daigle. So at Ralph's insistence, I began to read Clifton's Watchman's teaching letters. Some time later, I became involved with Clifton after I wrote him several times to contend with him on certain topics. Soon, our relationship grew out of the common understanding that we were both interested in getting to the truth of the matters of scripture and Christian identity, and especially to seed line. But even then, I had no concept of what we might accomplish or how far our relationship would grow. 
Over the ensuing years, Clifton and I, along with a couple of other friends, had exchanged letters both evaluating and debating many of the common identity teachings which were popular at the time and which are still popular today. One of those friends was David Gray. Among these are the so-called Sixth and Eighth Day Creation Theory, and the idea that the creation of non-whites of the non-white races is recorded in scripture. After much debate and much study, we now reject those concepts completely, even though they were taught by both Swift and Compare. While Swift and Compare taught the so-called Sixth and Eighth Day Creation Theory, Other writers in Christian identity who have rejected the notion that the Adamic man of Genesis chapter 1 represents the other races have nevertheless conjectured that the other races are found in the Che'erats, Che'erats or beast of the earth mentioned in that same chapter. We also reject that notion as both unscholarly and unscriptural. Of course, as I was experiencing all of this from 1997 and through 2008, I never imagined what I would do eventually after I left prison, and did not conceive of what what would develop from it. I honestly thought that I would end up with a 9-to-5 job, embark upon some new career, and that perhaps posting some of my writings or discussing our ideas somewhere on the internet might be a side interest. However, I am now both thankful and even blessed that I have been able to continue in my studies, and that I have been able to publish all of my writings on the internet. Now, I have promised to pursue the endeavor to put more of them into the form into the form of books and I pray that I could do that but there are many identity Christians who to this very day in spite of our work have decided to claim that we just make up things for ourselves slandering us in the process and they pretend to cleave to the teachings of Compare and Swift so I must ask If it cannot be proven explicitly that the other races of so-called people were created by Yahweh on the sixth day of creation as Adam, or on the fifth day of creation as beasts, if that cannot be proven explicitly, then who is it that is making anything up? And one individual, whom we know from social media, recently admitted to being familiar with our work in Pragmatic Genesis, while professing to continue to believe in the so-called Sixth and Eighth Day Creation Theory, ostensibly because he was an Aryan Nations member, and that is what a large portion of the remnant of Aryan Nations members continue to promote to this day. We are not picking on all Aryan Nations members. We have some that are very good friends, that we love and respect. However, many of them use the memory of their organization, 
as a reason to cling to doctrines which had been proven false. So how are they any better than Roman Catholics? In part one of Pragmatic Genesis, we prove beyond reasonable doubt by examining the grammatical forms of the Hebrew words as they appear throughout Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, that the Adam man of Genesis chapter 1 is the same Adamic man of Genesis chapter 2. We also prove that the Bible does indeed recapitulate itself and that the account from Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 of the creation of Adam is a new account giving a more detailed description of the creation of the Adamic man than what is seen in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Then in parts 17 through 21 of Pragmatic Genesis, we prove through scripture that the other races as we know them were never created by God and that he never took credit for having created them and even that he denies them. I pray that I never assert anything that I cannot prove through the scriptures. And so far as I am aware, I do not offer any biblical thesis in any of my writings without the support of two or three witnesses from scripture. I make nothing up. But we cannot offer a full proof of all these assertions here. Pragmatic Genesis is probably 50 hours of audio. If I had the opportunity to type it all out, because most of it was off the top of my head, if I had the opportunity to type it all out, it would probably take a thousand pages. All of this cannot possibly be repeated here. We have already given all of our reasons and our witnesses in our commentaries on and our papers, both in Pragmatic Genesis and in all of our biblical commentaries in writing. However, I must say that if we offer nothing but scripture to prove our positions, and if our opponents within Christian identity cannot prove that the scriptures uphold their own positions, who is making things up? It is certainly not us. This may seem divisive, but it is division that we require, so long as our division is for Christ. This may seem trivial, but it is far more important than many presumed identity Christians can realize. Yahweh our God has rejected the non-Adamic so-called races. They are all goats destined for the lake of fire, having the same fate as the devil and his angels. One is either a son or a bastard, a wheat or a tear. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a net cast into the sea, containing kinds or races the word is genos, of fish both good and bad. Yahweh's sheep are the children of Israel, according to scripture, and there are no others who are ever called his sheep, according to scripture. So the good race of fish, which is preserved, must also be the children of Israel, as according to the words of Christ himself, in the end it is only the sheep which enter into the kingdom of heaven. As Christ said in John chapter 3, Unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. So which of the other races 
Would any identity Christian claim is born from above? Clinging to doctrines that are not found in Scripture, such as putting non-whites into the category of chayarets, or beasts of the field, which is what Joseph November insists upon doing, or insisting that they are from the creation of Genesis 1 Adam, while whites are from the Genesis 2 Adam, as Swift and Compare had done. That is making things up! It is November, Swift, Compare, and those who follow them who make things up. But that is not what we do. And any insistence at all that the non-white races were created by God leads to the idea that by Him they were called good. Which in turn leads to the idea that we must accept them. Because God called them good. And that in turn leads to the inevitable result that can be seen on the beige and chocolate faces of so many of our children and grandchildren. Even to think that Yahweh somehow created other races as beasts leads to universalism by the back door. The word beast may be used as a pejorative to describe so-called people who are not really people. But that does not mean that such a beast was an element of God's creation. Yahweh did not create bastards, and according to Paul of Tarsus, if one is not a son, then one must be a bastard. According to the Apostle Peter, those spots on our Feast of Charity, those among us who are not truly of the children of Israel, are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. And Yahweh didn't create anything made to be taken and destroyed. The scriptures command complete separation for the children of Israel, as they did in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19, or in Deuteronomy chapter 14. So they do also in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, or in 1 Peter chapter 2. We cannot and we will not obtain that separation while at the same time we imagine that these non-white beasts are good people that Yahweh our God somehow created. Yet there are so-called Aryan Nations adherents, even those who claim to be leaders, who defend the non-white races and claim that Clifton and I simply make things up. Pretenders they are, and they shall always be pretenders so long as they cling to lies. The so-called sixth and eighth day creation theory is a damnable lie, and it needs to be destroyed from Christian identity. The idea that there are people whom God created as good beasts, and yet somehow they are treated as men in the New Testament, is an even worse lie that needs to be eradicated from any sound Christian identity profession. One of these leaders who criticizes us, a former Aryan Nations member, also has a political group somewhere in Arkansas. It has been reported to me that he has, among the members of his group, some imagined people, and I use that word very reluctantly, some imagined people who are not white. No wonder he criticizes us. It is evidently his agenda to make excuses for non-whites so that he can use them for his own political advantage. He is destined to fail, because Yahweh our God will not bless such an endeavor. The children of Israel were never blessed when they purposely included non-whites in anything they did. One example, one notable example, is that of the Gibeonites. 
and the children of Israel were punished for their unholy alliance, even where they did not make it purposely, having been deceived as to their identity. Now at the end of 2017, Cliff and Emheiser sat behind me on a couch in my office as I wrote this. Some of our listeners have asked, have asked about him, and we have been slack to report on him since we have, since we have relocated him to our home in Florida. I don't think I've said a word about poor Clifton since I moved him down here. Clifton is doing well and has lately found the energy to do a little writing. We pray he finds more and that he is able to continue. At 90, I'm sure it's difficult. With this, we shall begin our presentation of Clifton Emmeheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seedline, Part 22. This was written in February of 2003, when Clifton's ministry was nearing the conclusion of its fifth year. Throughout his writings, Clifton's statements were often topical. He was responding to feedback that he was getting letters that he that he was receiving from many of his subscribers in 2003. I'm not even sure Clifton was on the internet yet, but I think it did happen sometime around then. Thus he begins, Many may be wondering why I am so unremitting and dogged in my staunch position on two-seed-line doctrine. To make my stance perfectly clear, and so there will be absolutely no question in anyone's mind where I'm coming from on this issue. I will lay it all out before you. There were four principal men who taught to seed line and who are now dead and are not in a position to defend themselves. These men were Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, William P. Gale, and Lord Davis. After their deaths, crafty distractors took it upon themselves to take cheap pot shots at their teachings. Therefore, I have taken it upon myself, Clifton speaking, to defend these four deceased cardinal men in the face of these unprincipled, cunning deceivers. Many may condemn me for naming names and pointing fingers, but I would like to make it absolutely clear these anti-seed liners were the first to point fingers. In many cases, they didn't name names, but there was no doubt in anyone's mind to whom they were aiming their shoddy, unqualified remarks. And here we must recognize that there is a distinct difference between building upon our teachers of the past by correcting their work and continuing to improve it and actually tearing them down. We only seek to correct and improve upon our teachers and pray that in the future other men hold us in that same esteem. So Clifton continues, While I do not agree 100% with these four named principal men, nevertheless I rate them in the high 90s. I have developed a rating system for all those who proclaim they are Israel identity teachers. They use the 100% figure as a grade of perfect, 
I use. I'm sorry, Clifton said I use. The 100% figure as a grade of perfect. If the doctrine of two seed line is denied or omitted, I subtract 30%. Clifton's too kind. If the doctrine of Israel only is not taught, but replaced with the doctrine of universalism, I subtract another 30%. And again, Clifton's too kind. Then, if the no-devil doctrine is promoted, I subtract another 30%. And I guess that's equal parts for equally wrong doctrines, but that's okay. Clifton says, as you can distinctly perceive, I do not give some of those misleading con artists a very high rating, meaning those who criticize Compare and Swift and Gale and Nord Davis. And if the doctrine of dispensationalism is advanced, I would give an even lower score. Of all the false teachers, I would rate Stephen E. Jones the lowest on this scale, for he fosters anti-seedline, universalism, and no-devil doctrines, while Stephen E. Jones currently holds the top position for teaching false doctrine in this category. There are others who are trying to surpass him in all three of these erroneous concepts. Since Pete Peters has recently refuted the no-devil doctrine, I have raised him from 10% up to 40%, but in my book, he still has a long way to go. For anyone who wishes to borrow this rating system for themselves, please feel free to do so. And I think that's all kind of funny, but Clifton's dead serious. Those things matter. Those things probably matter more than any other Christian doctrines, except for the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Behind that, the fact that the Bible is a book representing the history of our white Adamic race, and only the future of only one family from that race, and covenants which Yahweh God had with that one particular family, that's probably second in importance, and that's represented in this 2C line, and non-universal, and anti-no-devil position which Clifton has. We know that the devil is represented by world Jewry and all of the world's bastards. Not merely Jewry. There's a lot of devils besides the Jews. Pete Peters also died shortly after Clifton wrote this. But from what I understand, he was beginning to admit that there was some truth to two seedline before he died. Sadly, though, he created purposeful division over the use of the Hebrew names for God in Christ, which is quite unfortunate. Clifton continues, We are told in Matthew 24.14 that this gospel of the kingdom should be preached in all the world for a witness unto all Israel nations, Clifton having, Clifton having Israel in brackets there, and then shall the end come. Clifton added the word Israel in brackets, which is not unjust, because the original Greek has a definite article reading all of the nations. 
referring to specific nations and not to just any nations. So he continues and he says that you will notice that it was to be a witness, not a mass conversion. If you get weary telling the Israel identity message only to be scoffed at in return, don't give up hope for it's our duty to continue to do so. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing. If someone then gets all bent out of shape because of the true message, simply go on and witness to someone else. The witness of that gospel of the kingdom starts with the story of Genesis 3.15. Anyone trying to witness to the gospel without the truth of two seed line is simply not proclaiming the entire gospel. And thus it becomes another gospel, Clifton citing Galatians 1.8, where Paul says that anyone preaching another gospel should be cursed. After reading this passage, it becomes quite apparent that proclaiming the gospel without the Provangelion, or first gospel, is rather serious. The Antichrist, anti-seedliners, will always quote Genesis 4.1 without regard to Genesis 4.25 and Genesis 5.3, and it will usually say, see there, Cain was Adam's son. That's exactly what they do. Genesis 4.25 reads, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, she said, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 reads, And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. One verse precludes the idea that Cain was Adam's son, because Cain did not was not Adam's son. It precludes, I'm sorry, it precludes the idea that Cain was Adam's son because Cain did not need to be replaced, but Abel did. The other precludes the idea that Cain was Adam's son because it is pointed out explicitly that Seth was of Adam's image and likeness, words which were never used of Cain. So again, Clifton continues and he says that most good Hebrew students recognize that there is a problem with Genesis 4.1 and indicate that there must be some kind of omission or gloss involved. The Targum of Jonathan to Genesis 4.1 And Adam knew Eve's wife, who was pregnant by the angel Samael. And she conceived and bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings, and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I've acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Clifton says, from this evidence it would appear that there is an omission from the text. And I would assert that from the evidence found in several Targums and Apocryphal books, as well as from several New Testament passages, it is clear that there is a problem with Genesis 4.1. This is true whether or not we agree with the specific substance of this particular Targum. Clifton continues, The Antichrist, anti-seedliners, usually read only one verse at a time, 
and in the process they missed the overall picture. Had they ever read and studied Genesis 4.25 and Genesis 5.3 in their proper context, they couldn't have made that error. Let's now examine these two passages in detail, and it will become quite evident that Cain was not Adam's son. Genesis 4.25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For Elohim, saith she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Clifton says, from this, there is no other alternative but to recognize that Seth was a replacement for Abel, not Cain. But this is not the end of the story. And to this day, Clifton still prefers to use the specific Hebrew term Elohim, rather than the general English title God. For Elohim, she says, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel. Now let's read Genesis 5.3 in its proper context. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Why would the writer of Genesis go to all the bother of pointing out in a double manner indicating that Seth was the likeness and image of Adam? The word likeness is the Hebrew word Strong's number 1823, and means resemblance, model, shape, manner, similitude, and fashion. The word image in the Hebrew means shadow, shade, phantom, illusion, resemblance, a representative figure. From this description, we can see that Seth was both the physical spitting image of Adam, and also had his mental characteristics and mannerism. If we take it one step further, and accept the fact that Seth was a replacement for Abel, we can only conclude that Abel was also the likeness and image of Adam. And I would, um, I would go one step further, and insist that the image of Adam represents that part of the organism, which we would call the eternal spirit, which includes the mind, but which is not limited to it. As it says in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. There we see that that image is an image of God's own eternity, his own immortal spirit. Clifton continues and asks, How can the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, overlook this immensely important scriptural testimony? Yet they do, and exalt themselves in the process. I would challenge every one of the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, to show any biblical evidence that Cain was in the likeness and image of Adam. They can't. There isn't any. I refer to them as Antichrist anti-seedliners, because if there was no physical seed of the serpent to bruise the heel of the Messiah, then we have no redemption. In denying the bruising, they are also denying that he came in the flesh and was bruised, died in the flesh, and was resurrected in the flesh on the third day, and ascended into heaven in the flesh. To deny one is to deny all, and therefore Antichrist. 
This is a very serious position for the Antichrist, anti-seedliners to take. And here I would also assert, because there are a lot of these people, here I would also assert that the claim that the flesh is the devil is even more Antichrist, since it is tantamount to saying that Christ came in the devil, and died in the devil, and was resurrected in the devil, and ascended to heaven in the devil. And if one wants to insist that the flesh of Christ was somehow different than the flesh of man, then one denies the scriptures which say that he took on him the seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16, and that he was of the seed of David according to the flesh, Romans 1.3, and that he might be born firstborn among many brethren, Romans 2.29, and that he was made like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2.17. Christ had the same flesh that we did. And he was died in it. And he was resurrected in it. And he ascended to heaven in it. And to deny one is to deny all. And makes you an antichrist. Continuing with Clifton. At Genesis 4.26 we are told, Then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. And at this point in his ministry, Clifton is using the English letters to represent the Tetragrammaton. Which is fine. Never are we told it was the nature of Cain to worship our Almighty Father. In fact, the record shows quite the opposite. And is quite evident among Cain's descendants the Jews of today and we would say that the Jews are only a portion of Cain's descendants they are not all of Cain's descendants most of the Arabs have also descended from Cain in part in part because they're Arabs the word Arab means mixed they never have and they never will meaning that they've never called on the name of Yahweh, and they never will. Therefore Abel and Seth were born of the Spirit, and Cain wasn't. For John chapter 3 verse 6 states, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Cain, being a half-breed, obstructed the ingress of the Spirit. Abel and Seth, along with all of their descendants, were spirit men like their father Adam, Clifton referring us to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Here again, Abel and Seth were born according to Yahweh's law, kind after kind. Cain was not purely Adam kind. Not only were Abel and Seth in the image of Adam, but Adam was in the image of Yahweh, referring to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And here it is evident that if the Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 creation is a creation of Adam-man other than and separate from the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Genesis chapter 2 Adam has the spirit of Yahweh, but the Genesis chapter 1 Adam has his image and likeness. So Genesis chapter 5 either creates a third Adam, or the first two are one and the same. All of this proves that the 6th and 8th day creation advocates have not properly thought these things through. We pray they are not stuck on stupid forever. 
Returning to Clifton, who was writing in reference to Cain, Therefore, it is blasphemous to even intimate that Adam was Cain's father. Yet the Antichrist anti-seedliners do this incessantly. By the way, the Hebrew article is not used, the, the word the in Hebrew, right? The definite article is not used in Genesis 126 with respect to Adam. But the article is used in verse 27. It is only proposed in verse 26 to create Adam in Yahweh's image. But in verse 27 it becomes an established fact and he is called the man or Adam. Strong's number 120. Strong's only broke his words up into divergent numbers in his lexicon to match the parts of speech in which they are used. There's really no difference in Strong's number 119, Strong's number 120, Strong's number 121, Strong's number 122. One of them is Adam as a common noun, which we would translate as man. The other is Adam with the Hebrew definite article, which refers to a specific Adam, so we would translate that with a capital A, Adam, referring to the individual by a proper name. And other forms are verbs, a verb and an adjective. The adjective form of Adam meaning ruddy, the verb form meaning to be reddish or to be ruddy, or, as Strong's has it, to show blood in the face. Clifton says there are many unqualified, alleged authorities going around Israel identity, spouting all kinds of nonsensical refuse, and don't even know the use of the Hebrew or Greek article. Colonel John R. Niamela retired, Clifton being kind of official in identifying this clown, is a case in point teaching his no-devil doctrine. Whether it is a real devil or not depends, in most instances, on the Hebrew or Greek article. In other words, if there's no article used, it's a common noun describing the behavior of any person who exhibits certain behavior. But if the article is used, it's referring to someone who is what Clifton calls here a real devil a person who is a devil by nature and not simply acting like a devil the devil ever since the birth of Cain his descendants have been both murderers and liars this was not the true nature of either Abel or Seth Adam's descendants have to be taught to act like Cain and Cain is an effective teacher. The point Clifton makes here is that our Adamic race was created for good. And while we can do evil, we nevertheless have an innate capacity to do good. But in contrast, Cain was a murderer from the beginning. He was a son of the devil. And all of his descendants even if they seem to do good, can only do evil. As Christ had said to them, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. If his word has no place in them, then they cannot possibly do well. 
again continuing with Clifton. The Bible Knowledge Commentary by Walvoord and Zuck, while wanting in many areas, does have a striking remark on Genesis 3.15, volume 1, page 33. Quoting the commentary, God said there would be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind. It would be between Satan and the woman and their respective offspring or seeds. The offspring of the woman was Cain. Then all humanity and Clifton wants to correct that to all Adam kind at large and then Christ and those collectively in him and Clifton did not repeat the part of the quote which explains the offspring of the serpent. To this Clifton responds and says, It can be readily seen that Walvoord and Zuck are teaching two seed line, and that their position is superior to that of the anti-seed liners. Remarkably, they point out that Cain is from the seed of the woman rather than Adam. At least Walvoord and Zuck admit that there are two seeds and that those seeds represent two kinds of offspring in a perpetual struggle. We could imagine that Walvoord and Zuck come to the inevitable conclusion of all those who do not recognize that there is a problem with Genesis 4.1, and mistakenly believe that Cain is of the seed of the woman because he is the son of Adam. With a single gloss, the ancient scribes have caused a world of confusion. Walvoord and Zuck, thinking that all things being equal, Cain and Abel were both the seed of the woman. If you're a woman, you have seed from your parents. That's your seed. If you marry somebody of a disparate race, and you're impregnated by him and you have a child who is an alien a third kind it's not one of you and it's not one of its father it's a different third kind that you have created it's a bastard that child might be your physical descendant but it's not your seed the seed in that child is drastically different from the seed in you A bastard is not properly a child of its parent or of either of its parents. It might be a biological child, but it's not the seed of its parents because its seed is entirely different than either of its parents. So Cain really was the seed of the serpent and really wasn't the seed of the woman. It wasn't of the same nature as Eve. Your child, if you go out and have a nigger baby, is not of the same nature as you. Clifton continues, By the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, taking the position that Cain was Adam's son, they imply that Cain was a brother to Yahshua. That also suggests that Cain was in the image of Adam. 
By this they make our Messiah to be a congenital liar and a murderer, as are the descendants of Cain. The twofold image of Adam's descendants are both physical and mental. Those Antichrist, anti-seedliners really don't stop and consider the horrible consequences of their flawed thesis. They keep digging themselves into a pit of their own making. The definition of congenital means existing from birth. That's the true meaning of John 8.44. Therefore, all of the descendants of Cain are congenital liars and murderers. And Yahshua didn't make any exceptions when he accused them in Matthew 23.35. But the Antichrist anti-seedliners are insistent on hanging on to their old, decrepit, insubstantial churchianity teachings. And here I would say that I would only say that the twofold image of Adam's descendants are both physical and spiritual, believing that the spiritual aspect of the creation of man transcends his physical state, whereas what we think of as mental is usually perceived to die with the body. In Matthew 23.35, we read where Christ tells his adversaries that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, which is actually an interpolation, unto the blood of Zechariah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar, our assertion is that if these men, whom Christ refers to as a genea or a race, are responsible for the blood of Abel, then they must be descendants of Cain. And they were. If they were actually descendants of Seth, Christ could not have made such an accusation. Continuing with Clifton, I need to repeat how nefarious a position the antagonists of the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 are demanding. By making Cain the brother of the full brother of Abel and Seth, they imply that the Messiah was in the same image as Cain, implying that Messiah was also a congenital liar and murderer. Additionally, if such a thing were true, that would make our Messiah equally responsible for all the murders of the prophets since Abel. Referring us back to Matthew 23.35 and also to Luke 11.51 where the account is recorded similarly. And this is true. If Cain was a devil, the law of kind after kind insists that Adam, Abel, and Seth were devils, if indeed Cain was of Adam's seed. If Christ told his adversaries that they were doing the work of their father, Cain, then that would also be the work of his father, Adam. John chapter 8 certainly stands in conflict with Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. And the only way to resolve the conflict is to admit that there is a problem with Genesis 4.1. And that problem certainly is demonstrable. So Clifton continues from a different aspect of the situation. 
the anti-seedliners in general, believed that Cain had a choice in the matter of murdering Abel, referring to Genesis 4-7. But if one will check the word sin, lieth, and door in that verse, one will discover it is speaking of conception and birth through the birth canal door. The problem with the Antichrist anti-seedliners is that they are still reading the Bible through churchianity glasses. They read John 3.3 as being regenerated by the Spirit, or born again, rather than to be born of the Spirit from above, born from above, or born of the chosen race. Here again they try to make it man's choice, as they also claim in the case of Cain. They read Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 where it says, Ye shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your Elohim, am holy. To mean some kind of spiritual perfection, rather than to keep one's racial line pure, whereas holy simply means set apart. And that's what holy means, set apart and devoted to the purposes of God. They read the parable of the wheat and the tares and make the tares all those people who have not chosen Jesus as their personal Savior, rather than the wheat being the descendants of Seth and the tares the descendants of Cain. They try to make man the one doing the choosing when John 15 verse 16 proclaims, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Cain really didn't have a choice in the matter, for he would simply follow his satanic genetics temperament. They suggest that a seed can choose to be a wheat or a tare. The next time you plant your garden, ask each individual seed what kind of fruit or vegetable it wants to be, and see how far you get. Now Clifton makes a parenthetical remark in relation to those who imagine these things. And he exclaims, Shades of Bozo the Clown. (laughs) Also, he says, if Cain and Yahshua, our Messiah, had been in the same image as the anti-seedliners imply, then our Savior would be in the same category of a fugitive and a vagabond. Not only that, but all the apostles would also have been fugitives and vagabonds. Cain was cursed to be both a fugitive and a vagabond. The meanings of these two words in English are very similar to those of the Hebrew and Greek. Also, Cain was driven out from the presence of Yahweh into the land of Nod. The term Nod simply means exile. Probably into the land of nowhere. Who are the people living in exile in all the countries of the world, having no place to call home? Who are the vagabonds of the world, and why aren't they white like the descendants of Adam? Oh, there are some who are almost white. This alone should prove beyond all doubt that Cain was not a full-blooded brother to Abel or Seth. Therefore, he was not in the spitting image of Adam. Actually, while Clifton is correct about the Jews, who descended from Cain, being more or less permanent exiles. The word Nod, Strong's Hebrew number 5113, actually means wandering. Cain was exiled into the land of wandering. But the word wandering 
which is a going astray, is often a synonym for sin. Paul of Tarsus uses it as a synonym for sin. Elsewhere it is used as a synonym for sin or transgression, to wander off the course, to stray from the law. But I would rather assert that Cain was banished to the land of wandering, outside of the Garden of Eden, ostensibly because the world was already engaged in sin, in the rebellion of the fallen angels, who were cast out into the earth, and neither was their place found any more in heaven. So to me, Nod represents that part of the world, which was not under the governance of Yahweh, for which reason he created Adam to establish his government. So Cain was put out from what we would call civilization, or the third world. He was put out into the land of sin, the land of wandering. Clifton continues, In the English, which is similar to the Greek and Hebrew, Vagabond means wandering from place to place without any settled home or habitation. Nomadic, a vagabond tribe, a person without a fixed home or abode, who has no apparent means of support. It also means leading an unsettled or carefree life, an itinerant beggar or thief, a vagabond, a tramp, a vagrant, a wandering rogue, a drifter, worthless, shiftless, good-for-nothing, rascal, an idle, disreputable, or shiftless person, of or pertaining to or characteristic of a vagabond, vagabond habits being aimless, aimlessness, drifting, instability, to be driven to and fro, strolling about, or shiftless. This is how we see the devil in the book of Job, chapter 1. That devil was one of these descendants of Cain, who was a vagabond. Having an uncertain or irregular course of direction, unpredictable, aimlessly following an irregular course or path. A person usually without a permanent home, who wanders from place to place, a nomad, an idle wanderer, without a permanent home or visible means of support. A tramp, a vagrant, a scamp, a carefree, worthless, or irresponsible person, a rogue. They all describe what Cain was to be in the world. And Clifton says, we cannot overlook the term vagrant, as it's a variant of vagabond, a person who wanders about idly and has no permanent home or employment. In the law, an idle person without visible means of support as a tramp or beggar. A person who wanders from place to place, wandering idly without a permanent home or employment, living in vagabondage. Clifton also repeats definitions where it means wandering or roaming from place to place, nomadic or of plants, staggering in growth, not fixed or settled, especially in course, moving hither and thither. Clifton then says not only was Cain to be a vagabond, but also a fugitive. And then he defines this word, one who is fleeing from prosecution, from legal punishment by the avenger of blood, 
or intolerable circumstances, like a runaway, a fugitive from justice, having taken flight or run away, fleeting, transitory, or elusive. And in the fine arts, the word fugitive means changing color as a result of exposure to light and chemical substances present in the atmosphere, in other pigments, or in the medium, meaning the article that's being painted. Cain, Clifton says that Cain's ever-elusive descendants also change color and behavior like a chameleon. Cain and his descendants are all of these things and more. To imply that Cain's and Seth's descendants are alike in image and nature is to accuse the Messiah of having these same qualities. Reread these characteristics and reconsider what the anti-seedliners are accusing the descendants of Adam, Abel, and Seth of being. They should be ashamed of themselves. And yes, Abel had descendants to Seth. The anti-seedliners fail to see that Cain and his descendants are yet to pay the full legal price for the murder of Abel via Seth, via Yahshua, the principal avenger of blood, and his brethren. Therefore, to hate Tusi line is to hate Yahweh and his cause, citing 1 John 3.8. All the anti-seedliners hate the Tusi line doctrine with a passion. In addition to this, it should be mentioned that there is no statute of limitation for the revenge of Abel's blood, which is still crying from the ground. Here John cited, I'm sorry, here Clifton cited John, 1 John 3, 8, which says that he that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this the purpose of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Joshua Christ being the avenger of Abel's blood. The devil sinned from the beginning. And Cain was a murderer from the beginning. His descendants were called congenital murderers and congenital liars by Yahshua Christ in John chapter 8. And Christ also denied that his father was their father, but said that their father was a devil. Since Yahweh did not create devils, then Cain must have had a different father. And that is the reason for the enmity between the two seeds. The two lines, that of Seth and that of Cain, must have had different inherent natures, as Christ fully explains in John chapter 8. To deny as much is to deny Christ. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle, Vagrants versus Move No More. We should never have difficulty identifying Cain's descendants by their lifestyle for they are cursed to never find a home. On the other hand, Adam's descendants through Seth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are promised to be planted and moved no more, citing 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Today, all one need to do is take a look around the world and observe who are moving and who are not moving, who has a land of their own and who does not. The anti-seedliners are totally oblivious to this fact, living in their own little fanciful two-by-four dream world. My God, wake up 
Your house is on fire. And the anti-sea-liners echo back, Oh, no it isn't. It's all a matter of the flesh. In a way they are correct, for Cain's descendants are of the world, and Adam's descendants are of the spirit. And let me say that after Christianity took hold in Europe, replacing paganism, for over a thousand years the Antichrist Jew had no home there. Then when they were admitted, they were chattel property of the kings, and they were continuous pogroms, where they were constantly expelled and driven from whatever homes they had. But now we live in a different dynamic, where Satan, the allegorical Jew, has been let out of the allegorical pit and has become our master. So we await the final day of vengeance where all of these enemies of our God will indeed be completely destroyed. Only Genesis 3.15 describes and accounts for what the Jew is doing in all the lands of Christendom today. And that's what the anti-seedliners are denying vehemently. They don't want to admit it. Yet you could look at all of these anti-white policies in every white nation and all of these anti-Christian policies in every nation and you could see that the Jew is behind it. And it's not even hidden. It's right out there in plain sight. So Clifton continues under the subtitle, One Way Enmity, and of course the subtitle is poking fun at these clowns. These people who deny to sea line. Of all the preposterous allegations put forth by the anti-sea liners, examine their claim that there is only one party to have enmity or hatred in Genesis 3.15. They intimate this by saying that the seed, the only seed of the woman is, as they call him, Jesus Christ. And that is the only seed there in that verse. They then claim that the seed of the serpent doesn't exist, or is of the flesh, or is figurative. Had they read the entire chapter, especially verse 14, they would have discovered that the thee and thy in verse 15 is the serpent of verse 14. The problem seems to be the anti-seedliners can only read one verse at a time, and a short verse at that. Now Clifton makes a parenthetical remark in relation to those who claim these things, and he exclaims, Shades of the second grade. In other words, these people just can't read. Or Yahweh says to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. He continues speaking to the serpent, the focus and the subject don't change in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Yahweh saying that to the serpent, speaking to the serpent of thy seed, the serpent must have seed. It must be literal seed, just like the seed of the woman is literal seed. The two seeds 
the two words have to refer to the same thing. They can't refer to two different things. They each had distinct seed. And one seed was to be perpetually opposed to the other seed. Clifton continues, They completely overlook the word between as if it wasn't there. The word between is derived from twain and twixt in Old English. The base word is bin in several languages and is dain in Hebrew. That's how we get the word binary. And Clifton then refers us to the word duo in the American Heritage College Dictionary under the Indo-European Roots Appendix. Then Clifton says, also see number 996 in the Hebrew in Strong's or Jusenius's lexicon. Strong's Hebrew 996 is the Hebrew word bane, which means a distinction, but only used as a preposition between, according to Strong's. Clifton says, it should be noted that 996 is used four times to separate between the two in verse 15a where in the King James Version it is translated two times as between and two times as and. But that doesn't seem to mean anything to the anti-seedliners. After all, it takes two to hate, the hater and the hated, except and unless one hates himself. In English, between means used to show two things considered together, in the space separating, used to indicate a comparison or choice, and in an intervening space or interval. Therefore, each meaning demands at least two things. Likewise, the between in Genesis 3.15 requires two entities, and they are the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Thus, the term to seed line is very appropriate. In addition to this, the Hebrew word 995, distinguished by Strong's as bean, B-I-Y-N, rather than bane, B-E-Y-N. It has the same Hebrew spelling, there being no vowel. The Hebrew word 995 is the root word for 996, and is an interval and a space between, and it says in Jesenius, to separate, to stand apart, to be distinct, to be separate and distinct, to be easily distinguished, distinct or manifest. What is there about it that we don't understand there are two separate seeds, not one? Well, I guess at least according to the anti-seedliners, that single seed was Christ, and he hated himself. Poor old God can't do anything right. Or must he first consult the single seed liners for their own private, all-wise interpretation as to the meaning of his word? And now Clifton makes another parenthetical remark concerning those who deny two seed line and exclaims, Conceit unlimited. And Clifton makes all these points in order to accentuate the fact that the serpent must have seed of its own. And that Yahweh God is speaking to the serpent, where he says that I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. So Christ can only be a party to one side of this enmity. 
And by necessity, this seed of the serpent opposed to Christ must be of some different seed, some seed not related to Christ. However, we understand the seed of the woman to be Christ and the entire race, the entire race of the woman, not merely Christ alone. And that would be the that would be the appropriate interpretation, because that word seed represents not a singular as in one single unit, but when that word seed is in the singular, it represents all of a single type or kind. It's a collective. The anti-seed liners are fools indeed, but they are too thick-headed to recognize their foolishness. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle, Two Seed Line, a hated doctrine, and it certainly is. Because white Adamites are by nature a peace-loving people, the idea of a war between two genetic peoples is repulsive. That is, until they understand that there is an enemy who wants to destroy their family and everything they stand for. Because the Adamites, our white race, are sheep rather than wolves, they think the wolves have the same values as the sheep, and that's always our biggest mistake, attributing to Negroes, Chinamen, and other beasts the values that we have. We do the same thing with Jews. And nothing's further than the truth. Those other races do not share our values. They never can and they never will. Some of them might put up a good show of it at diverse times. But when it comes down to it, they do not share our values. And they will violate our values at the first opportunity. The war in Genesis 3.15 is a war between the sheep and the wolves. The sheep are the true Israelites, and the wolves are the imposter Israelis known today as Jews. Actually, for the most part, today's Jews are the old Canaanites that occupied the land of Canaan before the true Israelites invaded that area under the command of Joshua. With their characteristic sheep nature, they didn't complete their Yahweh-commanded job of destroying the Canaanite wolves, and they still cling to that same weak position today. And we would assert that the seed of the serpent has carried itself not only through the Jews, but through the Arabs, the Turks, and all of the world's other races as well. Much of this assertion is readily evident in history. I'm sorry. Continuing with Clifton, Since Yahweh came in the flesh as our Redeemer, the hatred of Genesis 3.15, for the descendants of Cain came with him also. Therefore the single seed liners are at war with Messiah himself, and shaking their fist in his face. They have unwittingly, or maybe wittingly, joined the enemy. They are like the fundamentalists who scream and denounce the ADL, and then turn around and mollycoddle the Jews who run it, and declare that they are God's chosen people. Until the anti-seedliners discard their single-seed theory, they will be of no use to the Almighty or to themselves. In fact, with their untenable position, 
they become traitors to his cause. The only way one can line up with Yahweh is to love those whom he loves and hate those whom he hates. The Antichrist, anti-seedliners, hate the message of Genesis 3.15 and by doing that they become haters of Yahweh himself. Luke chapter 6 verse 46 says, And why call me Master, Master, and do not the things which I say? They deny his proclamation of Genesis 3.15 and teach the opposite. Ted Whelan, James Brueggemann, Stephen Jones. The very first thing the Antichrist anti-seedliners do is accuse the two seedliners of dividing the brethren, when in fact they are the ones guilty of that crime. They are quick to quote Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 19 where in 16 it says, These six things does Yahweh hate. Yeah, seven are an abomination to him. And then in chapter nine, in verse 19 it says, And he that sows discord among the brethren. Clifton says, The anti-seeliners would do well to read the first part of verse 19, which states, A false witness that speaks lies. And as I said before Clifton was often responding to things that he got in letters in the mail or in the email the entire passage of Proverbs he refers to reads thus these six things does Yahweh hate yes seven are an abomination unto him a proud look somebody who's haughty or arrogant a lying tongue, somebody who denies that there are two seeds in Genesis 3.15, or perhaps that swears there was a an eighth-day creation in Genesis. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among the brethren. The anti-seedliner should indeed heed closely all of verse 19. The point Clifton is making is that they love to complain about those who sow discord among the brethren while they themselves are speaking lies. And the speaking of lies is guaranteed to cause righteous discord. Clifton concludes, There is only one kind of disciple spreading the Master's teachings. Those who gather while others scatter. Citing Matthew 12.30 and Luke 11.23. These verses state, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Those who deny the two sea lines of Genesis 3.15 are among those who gathereth not, but scattereth. I realize that this is a very serious charge to make against the anti-seedliners, but they have actually joined themselves with the enemy. They are undermining the kingdom rather than building it. They should really read, and Clifton gives a whole list of passages here that I'm not even going to go there. Joshua, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Matthew 6, Mark 9, all in support of what he is stating. And he says, I could name all those who shake their fist at the two sea line doctrine. 
But if you've read the 20, first 21 articles I have written entitled Special Notice to All Who Deny to Sea Line, you already know who they are. If you're an anti-sea liner, don't feel bad if I have not mentioned your name. I apologize if I have missed the name of any the naming of any of the antichrist anti-seed liners. And actually Clifton it is being very truthful here. No matter how much you preach Jesus and and pretend to love Jesus, no matter how well you teach all of the denominational churchianity aspects of Christianity, go back and read those passages about scattering and gathering in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11. Christ connects them to the gathering of grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. If you deny to seed line, if you deny the racial message of the scripture, you are inevitably going to be trying to gather figs from thistles, like Ted Wyland, who denies to seed line, sends Bibles to niggers in Africa and brags about it. He's gathering figs from thistles, because those niggers can never be sheep. I don't care if you want to believe who created them, or where the hell they came from. They can never be sheep. And he came only for the sheep. As soon as you try to preach the word of God to them, you're gathering figs from thistles. You're not going to find figs, but you're trying to get figs out of thistles. You're not going to find grapes, but you're trying. You're attempting to gather grapes from thorns. You're not going to find any grapes among the thorns. And Christ connected that to scattering and gathering. Those who attempt to gather figs from thistles, or grapes from thorns, or sheep from monkeys, they're not really gathering with Christ, who came only to gather the sheep. They're scattering. When you bring a wolf into the sheepfold, or a monkey, you're causing the sheep to be scattered. Clifton closes and says again, I would point out, I am defending four principal men, Bertrand Compre, Wesley Swift, William Gale, and Lord Davis. Now, I myself don't know probably enough about the time when Clifton wrote this, but I personally wouldn't put Nord Davis on the scale of a Comparee, Swift, or Gale, but Clifton did, so we'll live with that. Maybe um, Nord Davis made an impression on Clifton, or maybe he did a lot more than I think he did. I don't know. I'm defending four principal men who taught two sea line doctrine and who are now dead and unable to defend themselves against the onslaught of the Antichrist anti-sea liners. Therefore, we two sea liners cannot promote or fellowship with such ministries who continue to defame them. For in doing so, we would become part and parcel of their misrepresentations of scripture. And sadly... To this very day, clowns such as Ted Wyland, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, and Colonel Richard Dick Nimella, or Nimola, continue in their treachery, blinding the sheep to the truth. 
Nimella is ceaseless in doing that in his email lists. And once you get on one of his email lists, it's impossible to get off it. He's such a pompous ass, he thinks you should hear every word he thinks. And Ted Wyland absolutely refuses to confront any adversary on Facebook. He absolutely refuses to confront in civil discussion anyone who really disagrees with him on Facebook. I've learned that by experience, no matter how kind I attempt to be. This man's a clown. This concludes our presentation. Yahweh willing, we shall return next week with 2 Timothy, part 3. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and never the God of the seed of the serpent. And thank you for listening. Don't you know that?